0: So welcome back to the Reading Corner for another episode. And today I'm really thrilled to be welcoming Annalise Avery. Annalise is a former library manager and now uh, an author of children's books. Um, Many people will have been excited by the Night Silver Promise. And soon we're about to have the second in that sequence, The Doomfire Secret. It's a highly original book and a very thrilling fantasy adventure. There's lots for us to talk about today, but first of all, a huge welcome to you, Annalise. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about being here. Although the second book is coming out, The Doomfire Secret, in case we do have listeners that haven't yet read The Night's Silver Promise, it's fair to say they're going to have to read it in order to understand the second book. So I think we should start at the very beginning. And I wanted to start with the very first sentence. It's a short sentence and it is destiny was calling Paisley Fitzwilliam. So there are two things in that sentence that I wanted to talk about to begin with. And the first one is destiny, because this is a really core element to how this world that you've described in the Night Silver Promise, how it actually functions, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. The concept
1: of destiny and the adding on of destiny to the world was the very last thing that went into my world building. It was the very last element that slot into place, and and I think like all things that are meant to be, when as soon as it slotted in, it looked as if it had been there forever. So I knew. Then that it was the right thing, but basically in the Knights of a Promise, everybody lives in a world that they think is operated by clockwork. It's called the Celestial Mechanism, and wherever the stars are at the moment of your birth, that gives you your your destiny, your track in the world. And each person is usually given their destiny when they're very little, when they're an infant. Um, but our main character, paisley Fitzwilliam, she she has yet to receive her stars. To be told what her destiny is and everybody who receives their destiny then follows it they follow their track in life and we get to see what happens when you don't have a track and the ideas of maybe following your own track and having your own destiny and what that's like to a society that has no concept really outside of this is your track and this is what you must do in your life
0: now you've already surprised me by saying that this was the thing that came last, because it is so integrated in the story. That must have meant there needed to be quite a lot of reworking of the story to make sure it was interwoven. Um, Well, I have a way of working that
1: usually terrifies other writers in that when i do an edit when like when i finish writing a draft and i go through my notes if i've got a lot to do i won't edit the manuscript i'll just kind of cast it aside and start again from the very beginning so when i realized that I needed to have the destiny element because I already had the idea of tracks and everything moving on a track and the clockwork mechanism. That was one of the very first things um, that I put into the world building Um, so it was just adding this extra layer of of destiny and it was just so obvious I seem to have lots of really good ideas when I'm washing up Um, I really should wash up a bit more but uh, (laughs) I feel it's character building for my children so I don't do as much washing up as maybe I ought to Um, but when I, I was washing up and I just thought oh of course if you live in a society where you believe that it's made out you know the fundamentals of your world are clockwork and everything has its place and, and is prescribed then wherever the stars are that's going to have enormous importance um and then obviously I uh called on astrology and the way that astrology puts lots of importance on on the motions of the planets and the stars but yeah it was like the very last thing so I just basically did a rewrite and it was that rewrite that I did that I entered into Undiscovered Voices 2020
0: Right, we're about five minutes into this interview. You've shocked me twice. (laughs) The idea of throwing away a manuscript and starting from scratch. I don't know how many thousand words it is, but that sort of fills me with dread as well. (laughs) Anyway, obviously worked well because the story turned out to be good. So who can quarrel with that? You know, the second part of that first sentence is Paisley Fitzwilliam, who is your protagonist. I want to know a bit more about her. So I'm quite lucky with characters. They tend to either
1: walk on fully formed or they walk on with me knowing enough about them that I can then start to have a conversation with them, which sounds bonkers. You know, it's just weird people saying that your characters talk, but they do. And they give you lots of insight and you should always... <laughs> I, I listen to them because if I don't, it's, it works out disastrously. I'll tell you a little bit later about when I didn't listen to Dax. So if, we, if I get distracted... Uh, do prompt me about that. Um, So Paisley, basically, I I saw her, she was standing on the roof of her family home and she was looking at Comet Worston home. And that was the very first thing that I saw about the story. And she had her telescope and she was looking at the comet. And I knew that the comet was important. And I knew that her mother had discovered this comet and that the comic was revolutionary and that her mother was going to do something that was going to change everything, the fundamentals of of how everybody thought. And I could hear a, a kicking on the chimney behind her and it was a a thud and a ting and a thud and a ting and it was Dax with his leg brace sitting behind her being a little bit frustrated and he'd sneaked up some pork pies for them to eat and so that was my opening that was like the first thing that I had in my head and the start of the conversation with Pacey and straight away I knew it was her story although on paper to start with, she is not the most interesting character in the story. Her brother definitely is more interesting than her. And I thought it was really, I thought for myself, you know, for myself to explore a character who has not as much expectation around them as the other characters and to see how they grow and how they fulfill their destiny when they haven't got one compared to somebody who's got an awful lot of destiny that they're living with.
0: So interesting, because it's one story, but we're seeing it from multiple perspectives. But obviously Paisley's is quite a dominant perspective and is there right from the beginning. Uh, So much so that at the beginning of this story, she is on her way to find out what her destiny is at 12 years old. It says, what if the destiny she had planned for herself was about to be stolen by the stars? I wonder if we could hear a little bit from the story at that point.
1: Okay, so she has gone to the Mechanist chapels and the Mechanists, they're the people who look after your stars. They give you your token. It comes through the post and then you go to a Mechanist chapel and you receive your stars. The Schematica was waiting for her on the diaz. Her left wrist tingled in anticipation. Like most Mechanist machines, the Schematica was elegant in its design. The slot at the top was just the right size for the copper disc, and the circular hole at the front was just the right size for her hand. Paisley could feel the rise and fall of her chest now. This was it. The cogs of fate had already turned, and she was about to know what her track held. Excitement jostled with fear and won out. She held her breath as she placed her left hand into the machine, palm up, and then placed the disc in the slot with her other hand. For a moment, nothing happened and then the machine closed around Paisley's forearm trapping her hand and wrist inside her breath quickened she felt a clamminess come over her Paisley's wrist began to burn she bit her lip and tears sprang down her cheek but the pain subsided in a moment and the squatter opened and Paisley tentatively pulled out her hand she held her arm up to the light studying the splattering of gold stars on her wrist Paisley smiled. She finally had her track. She was just like everyone else in the empire. But there was something strange about her stars. In all the charts she had ever seen, the golden dots were scattered over the circle, defining its circumference, filling its surface. But her stars were scattered in a semicircle, as if it were missing its other half. From the bottom of the schematica came a long piece of parchment. It had Paisley's name typed on it in Old Celtic. Below her name was a drawing identical to the stars on her wrist. Paisley looked beyond this at the series of symbols and detailed explanations. She translated each one quickly. They told her what type of a person she was, how her cogs would turn. She smiled broadly, reassured of the strange grouping of her stars as everything she read about herself rang true. Her stars said that she was brave and loyal, that she stood by the truth and would fight for the rights of herself and others. Her stars said that she put the needs of other people before her own, and she should be aware of that from time to time. Then she paused. As Paisley translated the last section of her chart, her mouth became dry. She read the lines once, twice, a third time. Her breathing came fast. Her heart sounded in her ears. Fear gripped her. You will be brave. You will try your hardest. You will have far to go, but you will not have long to travel. You will suffer great losses. Your stars say that you will fail. Your stars say, Paisley Fitzwilliam, that before the end of your 14th turning, your cog will cease, your attack will end, and you will die. How can you
0: do that to your heroine at the beginning of the story? <laughs>
1: I know um, poor Paisley, she, she she has a lot to deal with right from the beginning.
0: I wanted to talk a little bit because the, the clockwork is is absolutely magical and there are orreries all over the place, these wonderful meca- clockwork mechanisms of planets uh, and celestial bodies moving in space and time. There's a kind of coming together, though, I think, in this story of... The astrology, the scientific study, and then there's this astronomy, which is like fate and telling your story. And you were showing me earlier the proof cover, which I remember is so beautiful, sort of embossed with silver. You were telling me a story about the chart on the front cover. I wonder if you can yeah. share that with us.
1: Yes, um, on the beginning of the, uh, on the front of the proof cover for the Knights of the we had a circle and then a star chart. So, and obviously from the reading paisley's stars are all in one half, one half of the circle. And my own um, star chart, it has all except one star in one half of the circle and i don't know you know what it means but must be meaning that we're we're destined for each other or something because my my partner jason his star chart is the complete opposite he has everything in the other semicircle apart
0: from one star that ventures over to the other side so i always find that quite interesting so in this world where there's clockwork and there's destiny it also has a mythology that you've worked out quite carefully as well. It involves mechanists and chief designers and dragons that are like fallen angels and the George, which is like a saviour. Maybe in your words, you could tell us a bit about the mythology of this, this world. Basically, yes, there are dragons that helped
1: the chief designer to create the celestial mechanism. And I thought, okay, so I've got these tracks of the mechanism the unseen tracks of the mechanism and I knew that they were they were bonded metal of some kind and I thought okay what's going to be hot enough to create those kind of like subatomic bonds and I thought of course dragons dragon breath that'd do it so yeah the chief designer basically created the mechanism created everybody's tracks and used the dragons to forge. The mechanism and the dragons, they fell out of favor when the chief designer realized that anew the mother great mother dragon was forging her own unseen tracks in order to bring an end to the idea of destiny and to give control back to to people within the mechanism. So we have the dragon walkers, which we haven't talked about yet, but the dragon walkers are very heavily invested in the great mother dragon anew and and what she brings to the mythology and then we have the people in the northern realms who have a slightly different take on their mythology as well uh, which we get into in Doomfire secret which is quite interesting they believe in a time before the mechanism before the chief designer created the mechanism and they see the mechanism as being restrictive and they don't want to live their lives by that path. They believe that a person should not live their life by their stars, but live their life by their deeds Mm. and the things that they do. There's also the dragon touched. Now, what are they? They're basically women and girls, predominantly women and girls who have dragon-like attributes. So I was thinking about in in the days before before pandemics i was thinking about the smallpox and i was thinking about the way that uh women who had to cowpox often had a lower tolerance to to smallpox. And I can't exactly remember why I was thinking of this, but then it sparked an idea. And I thought, okay, what if there were women that looked after the dragons? Because we have dragons in the actual world of the celestial mechanism uh, before the George got rid of the great dragons, uh, but we still have smaller dragons um that are still populating in the world. um so i thought okay what if we've got these women who looked after the dragons lived quite closely to them and some kind of genetic transference occurred to give them dragon like attributes and that was really good fun trying to think up things within the parameter of being dragony but skills that they could have so there's odelia who's one of my absolute favorite mm-hmm. characters So she has magnificent dragon wings. And then there are other characters who can breathe fire. And then there are some who have dragon claws for nails and some that have dragon uh, tails or eyes that can see a little bit further along the track than everybody else into the veil. And they're persecuted. They are. The George, we spoke about the George earlier. So the George is... um, He's basically the king of Albion and a bit like the George and the dragon myth over here where George went off and slayed the dragons and then decided to eradicate them all. That's why the king is always called the George rather than the king. And so um, the current George is one in a very long line of Georges who has been chosen by his stars rather than by his bloodline um, to rule over everyone. And one of his jobs as... The George is to make sure that no dragons are allowed in Albion. So that goes for actual real-life dragons, like the tiny little papillion butterfly-sized dragons that we have in the world, up to the the Kriegar of the North, who have kind of small pony-sized dragons that they that they use for fighting. Um, And that also includes the dragon walkers. So dragon walkers, because they're persecuted and they're not allowed. um, Anybody with dragon touch, so a dragon like attribute is not allowed in Albion. And that's why the dragon walkers who are very good at building things, because dragons help to build the whole of the celestial mechanism. They have built themselves some floating boroughs so they can operate within the kind of e-commerce realms of the world mm. you know, the, the financial uh, because they do look after the finances as well because what do dragons love gold money hoarding it all away for you mm. so um yeah the dragon walkers they look after the wealth
0: of the world from afar you've talked about the floating boroughs so that brings me to thinking about london because this is a sort of alternate london where this story takes place. We've got a floating Greenwich, a floating Kensington. Now, what does sort of referencing places like that, that are known to us, because you could have invented anything, but by referencing something like London, what does that bring to your story? I think it brings
1: um, an instant familiarity for the reader. So they can, you know, they hear these words like Kensington above and they get a good idea of, okay, you know what that's kind of going to be like. So it does help with world building, but I think it also adds a richness. to the world and one of the things I really like to do on school visits is get children to create the floating borough for where they live or a place that they really like that they've been on holiday or something and just the fun that they have you know what do you put in there and it was a bit like that when I was making the floating borough so there's um, a Greenwich Overhead And Greenwich Overhead is basically the place where all science happens. Because when I was little, my grandparents, they took me to uh, Greenwich Observatory. So I knew that Paisley's mother was going to work on Greenwich Overhead because that's where the observatories were.
0: So we've talked about some of the ideas in the story and we've talked about Paisley, uh, the character. We haven't said much about her brother, Dax, and you promised to tell us what happened when you didn't (gasps) listen to Dax. Yes. Okay. so... This is a bit spoilery
1: for anybody who hasn't read the book. So I don't usually plot very heavily. I have this kind of idea of how things are going, like kind of signposts, things that are going to happen. And then we, I kind of just let my characters get there. And I d- decided that Dax was going to get kidnapped. And so Roach, who's one of our other POV characters, he was tasked with kidnapping Dax. and. For a month, I'd sit down and start writing it, writing that scene. And by the end of the scene, Dax had done something to get himself out of that position so that he was not being kidnapped. So I kept trying to write it and kept trying to write it. And in the end, I just had to go, okay, fine, I'll change what comes next because
0: this isn't going to work. (laughs) And so he did not get kidnapped. Interesting. Uh, The biggest villain, if you like, um, the dark dragon in your story, rather than making this dark dragon physically very threatening, you chose to make her a young girl, she's small and diminutive. She is, and
1: she's about the same age as Dax, well, to look at anyway. She looks like she's about 10 years old. Um, But as we find out, she has dragon touch. Her name is Sabra. And we find out as the Night Silver Promise progresses and the Doomfire Secret that Sabra's destiny has been entwined with the destiny of dragons and the George and the whole evolution of of the world uh, for an awfully long time. She's actually hundreds and hundreds of years old. And I think there's something really sad, but also very sinister about the idea of an immortal child who lives forever but can never quite evolve into adulthood or you know emotionally as well as physically Mm. I love the never-ending story as a child and I often think that she's she's basically like the evil version of the (laughs) the the empress (laughs) in, in that story so she's very complex and she has an awful lot of drives she's had lots and lots of opportunities to try and fulfill what she feels is her destiny which is to bring back the great dragons um because she feels partly responsible for their initial culling by the by the george but she realizes that she needs paisley you know in order to do that
0: so you've talked about plotting and how it's not your thing in some sense Do you see a difference between plot and story and what is it that makes a good story?
1: Oh, I once uh, did a workshop at my library and there was a a little boy there and he came up with the best like uh, kind of I don't know, equation, I guess, for story. And so I will steal it and and tell you about it. He said the story is where science and magic cross paths. And I think that's just perfect because I think the science of writing, the science of writing is is plot, is character, is your theme, is your tone, uh, is your voice. And then the magic is all of the bits that you don't know are going to happen. All of the bits that are very emotive, and they reach out to your reader, and they take them by the hand, and they guide them along on the journey. And when you have those two things together, that's when you have a story.
0: So you're saying you don't know where that magic is going to come? No, in fact. So when I was writing the Doomfire um
1: I again, I had my little my little flags in the sand. I knew bits that were going to happen. So I decided to write it completely out of order. So I started with my midpoint and I kind of knew like one or two things about the midpoint. So in the a bit spoilery, in the midpoint, Paisley goes to get a second lot of stars. And I knew that she was going to go to the chapel. It's actually a cathedral that she goes to. But I didn't know what was going to happen and how what her stars were going to say. And I just remember typing quite f- furiously. And just going, no way! What? No! And yeah, that's how it came out. I had no idea what her stars were going to be. But I was very surprised. And they are truly epic.
0: It's alchemy. That's what I'm getting from that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's definitely something going on that I'm uh, only privy to when the words leap onto the page.
0: Because we've got the second book coming out. Uh, the Doomfire Secret I think it'd be really nice even though we won't tell readers too much it'd be nice to tell them a little bit about what they can expect from the new book.
1: At the end of Night Silver Promise there is there is a tiny little bit of the cliffhanger so you kind of need to have read Night Silver Promise before and also there's there it's quite a richly built world and um, there are lots of threads going through. So I feel like if you jump straight into Doomfire, you might get lost quite quickly. Um, you wouldn't know where your track is. You need to have your track established. <laughs> so, um, but in the Doomfire secret, we we meet some new characters. So at the end of book one, we're we're introduced to the Krigar, which are the, the child fighting forces of the northern realms. And they fight on dragon backs. And the reason being that dragons don't trust adults so um once a rider gets well when they reach adolescence the dragon can sense that and no longer allows them permits them to to ride them and so we meet Hal Northman and he has just had a couple of disagreements with his dragon because he's got far too old and um, he's unfortunately lost an eye because dragons they don't hold back and he finds himself in Albion and for him to be there is almost as bad as him being a dragon walker if he's found out he would um he'd be executed so um paisley finds herself at the beginning of the story with her friend corbett corbett grubbins who um is her mother's apprentice in book one and she and how is her kind of prisoner to start with um they 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 become friends as the story progresses and then she has Odelia with her so Dax has been taken and the the whole driving element of the story is her finding her brother again um but at, at the same time she has these two new friends that she has to keep safe because they're in an awful lot of peril if anybody discovers who they are
0: it's a very exciting story It's a beautifully realised world. It's one in which there are many touchstones with our own, both through the mythology, which we have resonances, perhaps of biblical stories. There are little, you know, um, resonances there Um, with our own political world. There are resonances there as well. There's something about never trusting Uh, anybody who wants to be a prime minister at one point I seem to recall Uh, but above all it's a fantastic story and so Annalise thank you so much for joining me in the Reading Corner today and giving us a little insight uh, into your world. Thank you so much for having me
1: Vicky. it's been a joy. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nicky Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast please leave us a review If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.